from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Samuel Little. Now, it would be difficult to have not heard of Samuel at this point, since he's nearly constantly in the news. And if you haven't yet, I highly suggest that you go to YouTube and look up some of his FBI confessional videos and interviews. They're disturbing and interesting at the same time. So Samuel Little was born on June 7, 1940, making him a Gemini in Reynolds, Georgia. Now I've gone over what was going on in the world in the 1940s and all of that many, many times. So just for this particular podcast, we're going to go ahead and skip that and just get right into the story. Now, I did a quote chapter on Samuel a year or more ago on the Instagram account. While I was doing my research, the information I found out about his early life were that while he was very young, he and his family moved from Georgia up to Lorraine, Ohio, looking for a better life, indicating that his father was also in the picture. During the 1940s and 50s, steel factory jobs were booming around what is known as the Rust Belt, you know, Michigan and Ohio and all of that area. It was stated that his parents worked a lot and that his grandmother was his primary caregiver. But in a year's time since then, and especially now that he has very recently been confirmed to be the most prolific serial killer in American history thus far, surpassing Gary Ridgway that previously held that title, his backstory has changed. Now it is reported that his mother was a teenage prostitute and that there is no mention of who his biological father was. Some sources say his mother gave birth to him and left him on the side of a dirt road. He has said this himself. But it gives no explanation as to how whoever found him knew to take the infant to his maternal grandmother to raise. Perhaps his mother left a note pinned to his little blanket? I mean, who knows? But other sources say, and the authorities think, that his teen mother gave birth to him in jail and he was then given to his maternal grandmother. So, whichever story is true, if any of these three actually are, regardless, he was raised by his grandmother. That much we do know. 
Sources also agree that he was raised in Lorain, Ohio. There haven't been any reports of anything troubling really coming out of his very early childhood so far. But, as we all know, more information about him is discovered regularly. As a young student in school, he didn't really try to apply himself, and he did get into trouble often. It has been said that he was good at sports. And during this time, Samuel also developed a habit of petty theft and small crimes in his teen years. In 1956, he was sent to a boys' school in Lancaster, Ohio, for stealing a bicycle. At just 16 years old, he was arrested again for breaking and entering and was taken to a juvenile facility for troubled teens. But the interesting thing is, that arrest was in Omaha, Nebraska. So if you are familiar with the United States, you will know that Lorain, Ohio and Omaha, Nebraska are not even remotely close to each other. According to Google, they are around 770 miles apart, and it would take you 11 and a half hours just to make the drive. So what was he doing way over there, still as a minor? But once he was released, he went back to his grandmother's in Ohio and decided that he was going to quit high school. And as of this recording in October 2019, that is literally all we know about Samuel's childhood. There's not much to go on, so let's just start at the beginning. We really don't know what the true story is of his birth. He states his mother was a prostitute. So at first I thought, you know, how could he know that? But you'll see how he knew soon enough. His mother gave birth to him as a teenager, but we don't know just how young she was. We know nothing about her. We also have zero information on his biological father. Not a name, not an age or occupation, no stories about him whatsoever. So we have nothing to work with here either. The only thing we know for sure is that he was raised by his maternal grandmother. There's no mention of any other children in the house when he was growing up, so we don't even know if he had any aunts or uncles or cousins or anything that he would have been raised with. Samuel hasn't come out directly and spoken about his grandmother, which is actually a little telling. See, he doesn't blame anything on his childhood which reasonably leads us to believe he wasn't abused or neglected by his grandmother. Many people that have had hard childhoods and grow up to be criminals, well, the first thing they like to do is blame a terrible childhood for their actions. But we don't see that here. No stories of her beating him or telling him he was an unwanted child, none of that. In fact, she took in her grandchild, took on the sole responsibility of him without question, and that at least says something about her character. I highly doubt she was given any compensation for bringing him up, 
which makes me think she just thought raising him was the right thing to do. But again, we just can't know for sure. But we can get at least a glimpse into Samuel's developing mind with what little information we have. For instance, his mother was a prostitute who had no real hand in raising him. So there was a study done on children raised by grandparents when the parents are not in the picture. And according to NIH.gov, custodial grandchildren are reported by their caregivers to have higher levels of behavioral and emotional disturbances in the overall U.S. population. The two major reasons why these children encounter greater risk of these issues is because these children are typically receiving care from grandparents due to situations their parents are in, such as substance abuse, child abuse or neglect, teenage pregnancy, which is this particular situation, um, illness, divorce, and so on. Such situations come with a lot of risks of psychopathology among custodial grandchildren because they have likely been exposed to prenatal toxins, as in the mother did drugs or drank during pregnancy, as well as societal stigmas and just the overall uncertainty about their roots. The other reason is just the enormous challenge this presents to the grandparent. In a lot of cases, the grandparents were clearly not prepared, so starting completely over at a more advanced age is difficult to prepare for with such short notice. They never know if the parent will ever return for their child, which leaves bonding and the feeling of security up in the air, and some just aren't really up to the challenge. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In fact, 22% of youths attending inner-city community health centers that treat psychological issues were being cared for by their grandparents. They just all around have more behavioral and emotional issues. Now, these studies do not insinuate that the grandparent doesn't care for the child as much as they can. They are simply stating that it is often a negative situation regardless of, quote, how up to it the grandparent is to raise their grandchild. But the amount of speculation it would take to try to get a clearer picture of how his childhood and circumstances might have influenced his future behavior is dangerous and irresponsible. The only thing we can do is wait and see if more details come out at a later time. So getting back into his life story. Samuel quit high school and spent his time continuing to steal, but on occasion he worked part-time as a laborer. But in 1961, when he was 21 years old, 
he was arrested and sentenced to three years in prison for breaking into a furniture store. He was released at 24 years old and he immediately left Ohio and became a drifter for a while. He has said that he was able to travel from state to state pretty quickly. He loved traveling and he shoplifted or committed armed robbery to be able to survive. But eventually he found his way down to Florida where his mother was living. So obviously he knew where she was. So she most likely told him what had been going on with her when he was conceived and born. And chances are he probably went down there to be with her, to try it on, see if he could salvage some kind of relationship or maybe just out of sheer curiosity. There's no information on how they got along while he was there. We do know that he bounced from job to job. He was actually an ambulance attendant for a time and he also worked in a cemetery. Now Samuel grew into a six foot, three inch tall and very strong young man. While he had been in and out of jail for being caught stealing and so on, he began boxing and he showed a talent for it. Between the late 1960s and 1975, Samuel was arrested 26 times in a total of 11 different states with charges ranging from theft, fraud, sexual assault, to rape, and even assaulting a police officer. When he wasn't locked up, he spent most of his free time with prostitutes and their pimps. And it was also during this time that his violence would peak. Samuel says that his first murder was in Florida in 1970 when he was 30 years old and that she was a white female. Then in 1971 to 1972, he has confessed to murdering four more people, including two young black women and a transgender black female in Miami, Florida. Toward the end of 1972, he says he murdered a white female in Maryland. The next year, another murder in Florida, then New Orleans, Louisiana, Georgia, then back up to Ohio, then back down to Florida, to Tennessee, Texas, Illinois. He zigzagged all across the central and eastern part of the United States in his earlier murdering days. It would appear that the only breaks he took from murdering were when he was incarcerated for various charges. His victims were most often drug addicts and prostitutes, people that were on the fringes of society and therefore, unfortunately, their disappearances went largely unnoticed or if their bodies were found, it was just assumed they overdosed and so on. Samuel stated, quote, they was broke and homeless and they walked right into my spider web, unquote. In 1976, a woman in St. Louis, Missouri was found naked from the waist down, begging for help, her hands bound with electrical cord. She told the police that a man had picked her up, he had strangled her, beat her, and raped her before she somehow managed to escape. 
The police were able to find a car matching the description and they arrested Samuel. The victim's clothes were inside his car. His statement to the police was that he only beat her, he told them, and he got three months in jail. In 1982, Samuel was arrested for the murder of Patricia Mount in Forest Grove, Florida. He was later acquitted and freed. Then in October 1984, he was charged with attacking a woman in San Diego. Samuel agreed to plead guilty to a lesser charge and served two and a half years only. On his release, he moved to Los Angeles. In 1987, prostitutes Carol Alford was found murdered and Audrey Nelson found thrown in a dumpster two years later. Another prostitute, Guadalupe Apocada's body, also turned up in an abandoned building in Los Angeles, 1989. I mean, it would take me hours to list off all of the victims and where they were found. So to give you some context, during that time in Los Angeles, that area had several serial killers. LA is broken up into different agencies and they were all overwhelmed with the number of murders and we all know that the different departments are not stellar with communication in LA. Samuel was killing at the same time as Richard Ramirez, the duo Doug Clark and Carol Bundy. Um, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. and several others were in the Southern California area murdering in the 80s and 90s. So eventually Samuel left Los Angeles and eventually landed in Louisville, Kentucky where he stayed at a homeless shelter in 2012. DNA evidence was ever evolving and the police were better able to get the DNA profile of perpetrators. They found Samuel's DNA on the last three women he killed. They tracked him down in Kentucky, arrested him, and extradited him back to Los Angeles. Samuel was then charged with their murders in 2013. The evidence showed that he would attack the women by punching them, which would catch them off guard, obviously. He would beat them, rape them, and then strangle them to death. Disclaimer, this is graphic, but sometimes he masturbated while they were dying. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment with no chance of parole. However, the story doesn't end there. He actually had a longtime girlfriend that used to clean his car for him, which is where some of his murders occurred, and that indicates she might have at least been aware of his crimes, but it is not believed that she took part in any of them. She died of a brain aneurysm in the late 90s. He was also married once and said that he never murdered anyone he loved and he had to make a conscious effort to not look at their necks. You see, it was a woman's neck that triggered his sexual murder urges. He says that when women touched their neck, it was his sign from God. But then again, he also claims he is related to Malcolm X. So there's that. 
He says that this murderous rage and urge started in about third grade when this young girl in his class with these ringlets knew that he liked watching girls touch their necks and she used to sort of tease him by touching her own neck. So Samuel Little has confessed to many, many other murders that he had not previously been suspected of. And as his confessions are coming in, the police are scrambling to connect them to actual missing persons or murders that have remained unsolved. So far, again, as of the date of this recording, they have been able to prove 34 murders. They've been able to at least match him to a total of 50. And that number is increasing rapidly. And as he talks about each murder, he chuckles to himself. There is zero remorse or empathy. And the authorities believe that he very likely committed the 93 murders that he has confessed to, firmly labeling him as the most prolific, biggest, quote, body count serial killer in American history. At Samuel's 2014 sentencing, he was still shouting, quote, I didn't do it. The reason he has begun to confess is that he doesn't want to leave the Texas prison he is currently in and have to go back to the insanity that is the Los Angeles prison system. He's clearly not confessing because he sees the error of his ways or wants the families of his victims to have any amount of closure. Now he is an artist and does have some talent. He loves to draw. He said that he started in his first stint in jail when he was a teenager and he has always continued to draw. He's drawn many of his victims from his rather vivid and accurate dark memory. He is now 79 years old and is bound to a wheelchair due to him having diabetes and heart disease. And my heart is not breaking for him. So Samuel is a classic psychopath. He is superficially charming and glib. When you watch him, this is obvious. He has a rather inflated sense of self-worth and loves the attention he is getting and he needs that stimulation. He is highly manipulative. He shows absolutely zero remorse or guilt. He has rather shallow emotions and he was a callous serial killer. He obviously displayed socially irresponsible behavior and had reoccurring problems with the law his entire life. I mean, he ticks nearly every single box for psychopathy. So in my own opinion, I think he was born to kill. When this story first broke, I was doubtful that he had actually killed the number of people he said he did, mostly women and transgendered women. But as it turns out, they have been verifying one by one, case by case, that he did murder that many people. He was able to get away with it all of his life because he lived an almost exclusive nomadic existence, always on the move, and his chosen victims were people on the fringes of society. But what do you think? 
Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. I definitely need to update some gear so that I can work on the audio and things that I've seen the feedback on. It takes a lot of hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I love it. And thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.